Hello, this is Malia Warner, and welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. Today is episode 30. We are continuing with chapter 8 of Lies of the Magpie. Only a couple of chapters left to finish part one, so we will finish part one of Lies of the Magpie for our summer series, and then I am still working on what to do with Power Prince of the Pulls, the podcast, and continuing Lies of the Magpie for the fall, so I will keep you posted. For today, here it is, Lies of the Magpie, chapter eight. Last night when I packed my suitcase, I opened my linen closet to find my bag of travel size items which I keep in a plastic storage bin on the bottom shelf. I pulled out the bin and saw dead spiders along the baseboards, and a picture came to mind of me lying huddled and shaking, completely oblivious to dead or live spiders I might be touching. A wave of shame made me tremble, and I retrieved the bag, closed the lid, and stuffed the container back in the closet as fast as possible. I rarely think about the closet incident. But every now and then something will trigger the memory and I'm washed with humiliation. Was that really me? Did I really lock my children in their bedrooms and hide in the bottom of a linen closet? Sometimes when the image intrudes uninvited, I think maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it was a strange dream or something I'd read in a book about a different woman Then somehow my subconscious had crossed reality with fiction. I don't think that was the case. I remember details, like the fill of the carpet against my freezing torso, too explicitly for it to have been a dream. But when you're the only person who knows a secret, the mind can play strange tricks with that secret, crossing the memory between dream and reality. Aaron and I have grown closer over the past four years, but he doesn't know about the closet. I don't want to freak him out. Nor have I ever told him about driving away from home in the middle of the night, planning to change my identity and start a new life in Vegas. Nobody can ever know. Not Aaron, not my sister, definitely not my mother. If somebody found out, would they call me crazy and take my children away? When Kate was about 18 months old, I heard Marie Osmond give an interview talking about her experience with postpartum depression. One night, I got in the car and started to drive, she said. I didn't know where I was going or what I was going to do. All I knew was that I was unfit to be a mother and that everyone, my kids, my husband, even the Osmond family would be better off without me. My eyes were wide and focused on the TV screen. I took in every word. Her son was almost the exact age as Danny. I'd always felt a tiny connection to Marie Osmond. We're both Mormon and we both have a lot of brothers. And now she was telling me that we both got in our cars and drove away from our babies. She traveling north on the Pacific Coast Highway, me traveling northwest towards Las Vegas. This was the first time I'd ever heard the term postpartum depression. I checked out her book from the library. I related to almost all of her feelings, though nothing in her life. I'm not a child actress, a child star. I didn't have a publicist, talent coaches, a TV show watched by millions of adoring fans, or a number one song at age 13. She had a calendar overloaded with public appearances, people demanding to see her, hear her. At the end of the interview, the audience applauded for her. She was hailed as brave, courageous for sharing her story, for talking about a taboo subject. She'd had postpartum depression, and audiences applauded her for it. I don't know if I had postpartum depression. I do know that nobody applauded. Nobody even knew. I closed her book and looked around my house. I was no Marie Osmond. All the attention, demands of notoriety were a burden for her. My burden was that nobody noticed me. Nothing I did was admirable or worthy of attention. 
Nobody would ask me for an interview. So tell us about the fascinating system you've developed for changing two diapers at the same time. I wasn't offering anything intelligent, new, or noteworthy to the world. 90% of everything I did in a day would be undone by 5 p.m. 90% of what made me exhausted to the core was never noticed, never acknowledged, never appreciated. Motherhood is turning out to be every bit the dry, barren landscape I'm traveling. I feel stranded in the desert, exhausted, thirsty, crawling, begging for one liquid drop of admiration. The mirage of an abandoned Taurus off the side of the road again appears in my mind. I see the vultures circling around the corpse of the woman, her baby, the coyotes scanning the perimeter. And this time something in the mirage catches my attention. It's the car, the rusty car. I can tell it was once a gold Ford Taurus. But why is it rusty? How long has it been sitting there, abandoned in the desert? Wasn't anyone missing the woman? Didn't anyone realize she was missing? If I'm on the wrong road and I end up lost in the black canyons of New Mexico, how long will it take anyone to realize that I'm gone? In June 2001, six months after moving into our new white house, Aaron traveled to New York for business meetings. When I developed the role of film he took, he showed me the pictures. Times Square, Wall Street, Broadway. Everything was so clean, he said. It was a completely different city. He'd been to New York once before on a tour after high school graduation in 1993 when New York was notorious for filthy and dangerous streets. You didn't walk out at night. Over the past seven years, New York had done a complete turnaround. I can't wait to go back, Aaron told me. In September, I just got word of another training in the World Trade Center. I'll let you know the dates for certain when I get them. On Monday, September 10th, we celebrated Anissa's birthday. I invited her family to come over for dinner and birthday cake. After dinner, we all circled around the phone and called Kevin. Happy birthday, dear Kevin, we all sang. Today was also Kevin's birthday. Every year of my life, September 10th meant celebrating two of my siblings' birthdays with one cake. Kevin and Anise would sit on opposite sides of the table and blow out their candles on their shared cake. We crammed both their names into the birthday song. Happy birthday, dear Kevin and Anise. My mother tells their story. The day Kevin was born, the nurse who helped deliver and announced that it was a boy said, Come back in two years and you'll get your girl. What would possess a nurse to make that risky a prediction? I don't know. I suppose she had a 50-50 chance of being right. Maybe it was a side comment she didn't even realize she was saying. Maybe she was overcome by a spirit of destiny. Maybe some otherworldly powers were sending a message through her to my mother. Whatever the case, she surely couldn't have predicted that two years later, to the day, my mother would return to deliver her girl. And yes, the same nurse was there for Anissa's delivery as well. It was past Ashley's school bedtime when we finally stopped talking and laughing and hugged them goodbye. Erin and I put Danny and Kate to bed, cleaned up the kitchen, and put ourselves to bed. It was a night like hundreds of other nights. On Tuesday morning, the phone woke us early. You're joking, I heard Erin say into the mouthpiece. We turned on the TV and watched the news together for 30 minutes. Possible act of terror, the news reporter was saying. The scene of smoke billowing out of the towers played in the background. Cameras panned to seas of people exiting the buildings and firefighters working their way inside. Aaron threw on clothes without taking a shower and rushed to the office. He called after the first tower fell. Did you see that? His voice was full of disbelief. Yes, I'm watching. There was a long pause. Neither of us knew what to say. There were no words. Aaron, I... I know. He hung up. 
I let the phone sink to my shoulder, but I didn't let go. Then the second tower fell. Danny handed me his sippy cup. Mo dwink, Mom. With robotic movements, I took the cup and walked to the fridge. With the phone in one hand, I unscrewed the lid and held the cup under the ice dispenser while I stared at the white magnet with green lettering. The magnet read, Name, Aaron Warner. During my trip, I can be reached at the New York Marriott World Trade Center. Phone number 1-212-513-6798. Whenever Aaron traveled, Goodwin Financial sent me a magnet with his contact information. This was a few years before everyone from Indiana to Indonesia owned a cell phone, and landlines were still essential. The magnet even listed a fax number. Aaron had been scheduled to attend meetings at the World Trade Center on September 11th, until something at corporate office came up and the trainings were pushed back to the following week. He had his airline tickets. Next Tuesday, he was supposed to fly to New York and stay in a hotel that, as of a few minutes ago, no longer existed. He was scheduled to have meetings on the 83rd floor in a building that I had watched collapse in on itself floor upon floor until it disappeared into a cloud of dust and debris. Danny pulled on the pant leg of my pajamas. Drink, Mom! I handed him the cup. With the phone still in my hand, I dialed the phone number listed on the magnet. Why? I had to know. I had to go through the possible scenarios. If Aaron's trip hadn't been changed, if he was there right now, the first thing I would do is dial the phone number. I got a busy signal. Aaron called again later. The stock market is closed. It could be closed for six months. Nobody knows. After the first, then second day, the news coverage changed to bio stories about missing persons. Katie Couric narrated what the person had done that morning before going to work, while the family showed photographs. If Aaron had been there, would he be missing, or would he have gotten out? His dad was a volunteer firefighter. Aaron grew up with a police scanner in his home. His family followed every town emergency. At night, in bed, when we heard a siren, I had to put my arm over Aaron to hold him in bed. Most of the time, it didn't work. Knowing Aaron, he would have been in the building getting people out. We didn't celebrate Kate's birthday that week. With so many people searching desperately for their family members, no one in the country felt like celebrating anything. Everyone just wanted to travel to Ground Zero and help search through the rubble. Kate was young enough not to notice. For weeks, I couldn't sleep. With the stock market closed, we could be six months or longer without a paycheck. It was such a small worry compared to the families on the screen who might never see their loved ones again. Still, I went to the local Target one afternoon and filled out an employee application. I set up the card table in the family room and worked on a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle while I watched the news stories. It was my way of trying to piece it all together. I became fascinated with Lisa Roller. She was a pregnant mom whose husband happened to be on a certain flight. She could have been any one of us and any of us could have been her. The country hefted her onto its shoulder, a hero who had risen from the tragedy. She became the nation's victim-in-chief. Danny and Kate wanted me to play cards with them. They wanted to go to the park. They wanted to go swimming. Go watch Dalmatians, I said, shooing them out to the garage to play. I couldn't turn off the TV. I couldn't miss a single story. Ma, I want breakfast, Danny complained. I watched the TV the whole time I warmed up leftover waffles and set them on the table in front of Danny. I went back to the television, forgetting the butter and syrup. Danny unscrewed the top of the syrup container by himself and tipped the jar upside down. The syrup dumped out in a thick glop spilling over the table and dripping down to the floor. 
Mom, Danny called. I stripped Danny's sticky pajamas and put him in the tub. I used a roll of paper towels wiping up the messy puddles of maple goop. After the paper towels, I used a wet dish rag to wash off the sticky, but for the rest of the day, my shoes stuck when I walked over that part on the floor. On my hands and knees trying to mop away the stickiness, I cried. I sobbed for everything. For the people who ran away from the buildings covered with ash. For the families who were searching every hospital. For the jumpers who chose to fall rather than to burn. For the workers who found remains of human life in the debris. I sobbed for not knowing how we would live if Aaron couldn't make money. Then I sobbed feeling guilty for worrying about something so trivial as money. Lisa Roller made an appearance introduced by President Bush. Instead of feeling sorry for her, I was jealous at how cute she looked. She was darling, her baby bump drawing sympathy beneath her stylish black widow's dress. Did I actually envy her? People knew her name. They knew her story. The nation was watching. She was seen. I was fast growing invisible, stuck here in this stupid white house scrubbing syrup off the floor. I had become a permanent household fixture, like the clock that no one noticed unless it stopped working. I wanted someone, anyone, to pay attention to me, to award me for simply being a mother with a courageous attitude. I looked at her and thought, I could do what she's doing. I could smile and be brave. I could give a speech about my husband. Yes, I believed it. I could be a widow. I would be okay financially with the life insurance payment. President Bush would make sure of that. I could handle the grief. I could be a courageous widow and attend the memorial services in a classy cut maternity smock and wipe gently at my eyes with a hanky. This, this I cannot do. This, scrubbing the kitchen floor in my pajamas up to my elbows with sticky. This, the day after day, repetitive, I was dying of boredom. I had the strength and backbone to face up to the big crises. It was the monotony of my life that would be the end of me. Sorting pieces of my Thomas Kincaid puzzle while watching lives and stories and interviews appear on the screen. I let my mind wander, fill in the blanks of all the possible scenarios. What if Aaron had been there? I imagined reporters entering my White House, Filming my sleeping children, their cheeks and angel lashes zoomed in, appearing on TV screens across America, across the world. My white carpet, the background setting of America's tragic story, me, the main character, everyone watching me, seeing me, repeating my name, knowing I'm here. And as the daydream played out, I seriously considered the question, would I want that? Would losing my husband be worth the notoriety? I would never know because that wasn't my story. That scenario belonged to Lisa Roller and the other widows on TV. Being a 9-11 widow was not the hand of cards dealt to me. Sometime later, deep in thought, I said out loud to Aaron, I think my trial in life is to learn how to live with you, not how to live without you. Every day sending him out the door and working to guard the children, the budget, the carpet, and doing it again the next day. Perhaps I had the strength and fortitude to survive the unspeakable tragedy. The unknown question was if I had what it takes to be the unsung hero. We finally celebrated Kate's birthday with a boxed cake mix. 
In true American spirit, the stock market reopened and Aaron returned to normal work. Late-night comedians resumed their shows. Baseball fields opened. Each ball game started with a New York police officer or firefighter singing the national anthem. The traditional Take Me Out to the Ballpark normally sung during the seven-inning stretch was replaced with various versions of God Bless America. On flag-lined streets, Americans let petty grievances go. That fall, the Arizona Diamondbacks played the New York Yankees for the World Series. This year, the series wasn't about who won as much as it was about holding on to the tradition of America's favorite pastime. I wondered how soon the patriotism would end. People could be so fickle. But November came and the flags were still flying, work on Ground Zero still going strong. The week before Thanksgiving, Anise took Ashley and Tyson and flew to Utah to visit Kevin. His heart was worn out. My parents had called hospice and ordered an electronic hospital bed so it would be easier to get him in and out. I didn't go. Kevin had rallied so many times before. I didn't fully believe when my mom said she thought this was it. Kevin walked to the table and ate Thanksgiving dinner, his favorite meal of the year. That was the last time he walked. By Friday, he was so weak that my youngest brother had to carry him to the bathroom. On Sunday morning, we got a phone call. My grandma Evelyn had passed away my mother's mother. I cried through all of church. Sunday evening, I asked mom to put the phone to Kevin's ear. He didn't speak. I could hear him breathe. Kevin, I will be coming this week, but if you are ready, if you need to leave now, it's okay. You don't have to wait for me. I love you. In the night, something woke me from a deep sleep, like someone had entered my room. My eyes opened alert. I knew Kevin had left his body. I went to my walk-in closet and prayed and cried. An hour later, the phone rang. It's over, my mom's voice choked with emotion. We felt angels come to meet him, and we felt him leave. I knew that Grandma Evelyn, among others, helped escort him through the transition. I was happy for Kevin. Now he could be free, free of his limited body, free of his stuttered speech, free to run, free to express his thoughts with unlimited words. I'd been prepared my whole life for this. He passed peacefully, surrounded by family, and escorted through the final weeks with a series of miracles that blew our minds. Kevin had a direct line to heaven, and St. Peter had been rolling out the red carpet and arranging every VIP accommodation for his return. For the weeks leading up to his passing, my family had been held like sparrows in the palm of God's hand. So I was not prepared for the dark cavern of grief that swallowed me the moment I returned from the funeral. We buried Kevin on December 1st in a small cemetery next to my dad's parents. My dad and brothers, plus Calvin and Aaron, carried his casket. It was the snowiest day of the year. I'd flown on Wednesday for my grandmother's funeral. Aaron drove up Friday with Danny and Kate during the worst snowstorm in Utah records since 25 years before. A second round of the storm was moving in, so we left abruptly after the burial services to get as far south as we could before dark. The rest of my family stayed at our family home and attended church in our family congregation, a place where everyone knew and loved Kevin. Back in Arizona, no one knew Kevin. How did your brother die, they'd ask. When I answered about his Down syndrome and weak heart, they brushed it off as if he wasn't a whole person to me. On the contrary, Kevin had held me together. He was the constant of our lives. 
As siblings, we left home for college, work, missions, marriage, but Kevin remained. He was the center of our will. All our spokes spun around him. He was our center of gravity. Kevin kept me grounded. He was my foundation. After his funeral, it was like I lost my footing. I woke up to my routines, but I couldn't get my bearings. I met grief, a burly, dark beast who ripped at my chest and tore me apart before it consumed me. I collapsed over the kitchen sink, staining the dishes with salty tears. I melted down the counter and landed in a wrinkled heap, holding onto my knees, rocking back and forth, hiccuping with sobs. Kate reached for the tears with curiosity. Danny said, Don't be sad, Mom. Aaron kept an uncertain distance. In this time... I prayed that Lisa Roller would forgive me. I had been jealous of her cute clothes or baby bump, her time in the spotlight. I had no understanding the monster of grief that tortured her once the cameras turned away. I would never choose to lose any member of my family, not for any amount of attention. As time passed, I realized I didn't have the strength and fortitude to survive grief. Kevin's passing was expected, peaceful, even miraculous. I had long been prepared to say goodbye, and still the grief was all-consuming. I sobbed and cried harder for all of the 9-11 families who were battling a grief complicated by unexpected, unnecessary, horrific death. And all of this just seemed to make me cry even harder. Most unexpected was a dark feeling of unworthiness. Kevin had been near to an angel on earth, and I had no doubt he was accepted with open arms in heaven. I pictured him now bathed in white and light, looking down ashamed of me. He must be so embarrassed to look down and see all the silly things that trip me up, that I don't read my scriptures every day, that my prayers are quick and shallow, how I get caught up with worry about money and decorating my house and what to wear. It became evident I was not going to survive this jagged lump in my throat, this ache in my chest that never went away. In desperation, I reached out and grabbed a lifeline, my childhood piano teacher. I dialed her phone number from memory. She said hello. I said, it's Malia. And as I had so many times before sitting on her piano bench, I broke down into sobs. Once again, she had the answer I needed. When your mother asked me to play the music for Kevin's funeral, she began. She asked if I would play the hymn, I'll go where you want me to go. As that was Kevin's life motto, he was always willing to go wherever God wanted him to go, to be whatever God wanted him to be. But, she said, as I was practicing the music, one particular hymn kept coming to my mind over and over and over again. The hymn, Families Can Be Together Forever. I knew the song well. I sang it often with my primary children on Sundays. It's a core of my spiritual beliefs that family will be reunited after death. That indeed, families are forever. My piano teacher continued. The words of the song kept coming to my mind. I have a family here on earth, and particularly these lyrics. They are so good to me. She said, Your family was so good to Kevin. All of you. You were always so good to him. The words were a soothing balm. 
They washed through me, and I felt the ache in my chest lighten. A peace and warmth enveloped me, and I felt Kevin's embracing, heavenly hug encircle me, affirming to me the truth. He was not ashamed of me. He loved us. He loved our family. Indeed, he felt we had been so good to him, and he had been so good to us. He was happy and even proud to have me as a sister. And in that moment, soaked in his angel presence, I understood that it didn't matter the notoriety, the attention, recognition, applause. They were all so fleeting. My worries about jam stains on my white house, or if my pot shelves had enough decorations. There was nothing else in the world, no award, no trophy, no crown, no title, that could give me greater honor. Nothing could surpass the deep, deep privilege that I get to be Kevin's sister. Now as I'm driving and sunlight pours through the windshield, I think about Kevin. I feel him close. We have the impression that every baby that has been born into my family since Kevin's passing has been personally prepared and accompanied into this world by Kevin. When Tanner came, I saw Kevin in his face. I think about meeting this baby and what message it will bring me from Kevin. I live in a world that worships celebrity, people who look spectacular on the outside, but often there's not much substance on the inside. Kevin was the opposite. Judging him from the outside, you would never guess at the deep treasures within. Thinking of Kevin's life, I realize he never left home. He didn't earn a college diploma or even a high school diploma. He didn't travel or win any awards. But Kevin mastered love. Everyone who ever had the opportunity to meet him remembered him. He changed you for the better. He could bring out the divine in any person. And really, when it comes right down to it, that's what it's all about, isn't it? By the new year, I had cried everything out of me. Every emotion, every worry, every judgment. I was spent, but I felt cleansed. And I went into the new year with an understanding that family was what mattered. It wasn't important, the artwork on the wall, or if Danny or Kate walked onto the white carpet without wiping their feet. What mattered was just us being together, joined by that insurpassable feeling of love. The first part of January, the kids and I went to the airport to pick up Aaron from one of his work trips. When they spotted him coming off the escalator, Danny and Kate sprinted at full speed. Daddy! Daddy! They tackled him below the knees. He could barely walk for the weight of their hugs on both legs. Next to us, another passenger looked at his teenage daughter, who impatiently jiggled the car keys, telling her dad to hurry because his arrival had interrupted her important teenage life. Why don't you greet me like that anymore? He looked at his daughter, gesturing to Danny and Kate, who had each taken one of Aaron's hands and were leading him towards me. The passenger gave his daughter a gentle shove. She smiled and we all laughed. We walked toward the baggage claim, Aaron's arm around my shoulder, Kate holding my hand, and Danny holding Aaron's hand. And on that day, I was not jealous of Lisa Roller. I bowed my head and said a silent prayer for her. I was doing something that she had not had the opportunity to do. I was meeting my husband, the father of my children, after his flight safely landed, and we were all going home together.
The next couple of months, our evenings were spent watching the 2002 Winter Olympics hosted by Salt Lake City. My dad volunteered as a security guard at one of the Olympic venues. A news reporter looked up at him and said, Boy, they grow them tall here in Utah. The skyscrapers of the city were draped with banners depicting the various winter sports. A speed skater, an aerial ski jumper, an ice skater. My parents' condo building was decorated with a colorful array of international flags. Each time the television cameras panned over the Salt Lake landscape, I pointed to Danny and Kate. That's where Grandma and Grandpa live. See the green and white flag? See the porch swing? That's where you love to sit. Danny and Kate were more interested in performing their own Olympic stunts off the half wall into the beanbag. That fall, the country remembered 9-11 with one-year anniversary memorial programs. We celebrated Kate on her real birthday. Erin took pictures as she blew out the flame of three candles on her cake. You know what, Kate? Erin put down the camera. The best thing about you turning three is that you are not two anymore. I agreed. Danny and Kate were both potty trained. They could speak. They understood. Don't touch. And they could get themselves dressed. On a beautiful fall day, I was cleaning out Kate's closet, adding her two small clothes to bins of her baby clothes. Danny walked in the room. <gasps> Mom, did you buy all these beautiful clothes for Kate? I said, no, Danny, these are the clothes she wore as a baby. Danny said, Mom, can we have a baby at our house to wear these? After family prayer one night, we watched Danny and Kate say a quick amen and quickly squeeze in a few more somersaults off the couch before they know we will make them go to bed. I turned to Aaron. So you think we're ready for another? Yes, ma'am. He kissed my nose. I believe we are. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening. As you could probably tell, I had a hard time recording this chapter. To give you a little background, when I entered Lies of the Magpie into the Utah Arts Council original writing competition, one of the judges' feedback comments I received was that the manuscript needed more information, more detail about Kevin, my relationship to him, and how his death impacted me. It's true in that manuscript I had hastily skimmed over, really barely mentioned his passing. It's hard to write. It's hard to put it into words. And as hard as I thought it was to write, whew, I hadn't really thought through speaking out loud the words on audio. So I apologize for the rough recording. I had to do a lot of editing on this episode. And believe me, what came out was the least sobby of all of the versions. But it feels good to talk about my brother. Man, I miss him. Shout out to you, Kevin. Love you, buddy. And for the rest of you, I will meet you back here next week with another episode of Power Principles, the podcast. Mm-hmm.